0: Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt.
1: And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the trunchbull. trunchbull. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations.
0: They're all mistakes, children. nasty things. Glad I never was one.
1: There we go. That was her protestations there. Each episode, we will be reviewing one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch.
0: You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at Trunchbull Pod and on Instagram we are at eventhetrunchbull. What are we reading about today, Matt?
1: We're reading about mermaids! Yay.
0: <laughs> we're going to start with a retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's classic, The Little Mermaid. And it is a retelling by Jerry Pinckney, which came out in 2020, so quite a recent one. And then we're going to go into a brand new story by Lisette Orton, The Secret of Haven Point."
1: That's right, yeah, and both very similar. Both have got a lighthouse, both have got at least one mermaid Yeah, and some child protagonists, and we like them both very much. Um, so we're going to start with The Little Mermaid.
0: Yeah, so Jerry Pinkney, you probably know of him if you read US picture books at all. He's a multiple Coretta Scott King Award winner. And the Caldecott Award. He's done a lot of retellings of folk tales and traditional stories. He's done a lot of Aesop's tales. He did The Adventures of Br'er Rabbit. right? So all that stuff um, is his illustrations. And then later in his life, he died last year. Later in his life, he started writing his own words as well but he always did the drawings first. And if you look in his early books, he had members of his family put on costumes and like pose. So...
1: I love that. So it almost becomes like life drawing. Like yeah. he just sort of dresses yeah. them up in little tableaus and hold very still like a Victorian photograph. Kind
0: yeah. Of. It was very important to him to represent black children in these stories and right. in these traditional tales. And he started working at a time when... That was really not something that you found commonly. Right. So that's who he is. He's got some stuff to say. He was he spoke at a lockdown book event last year about the Little Mermaid, and he's got some stuff to say about how Hans Christian Andersen's original Little Mermaid has some problematic bits. So right. <laughs> which he decided to address in this. So I'm gonna tell you first Hans Christian Andersen's story. Okay. The Little Mermaid lives under the sea with her father and her four big sisters. And she is the overlooked little sister, as always in fairy tales. The youngest child is overlooked by everybody else and is actually the best one. She sees a birthday party on a ship for a prince. And she pops out the water and has a look at him and falls in love with him. Um, mm. Because that's how you fall in love in fairy tales. One look. Yeah. Then there's Terrible Storm. And a shipwreck, and the prince is wounded and knocked unconscious, and she helps him to the shore where some young women who were at a temple sort of like drag him up, and he wakes up and he thinks those women have saved him and doesn't realise Little Mermaid saved him. Right. So Little Mermaid goes to the evil sea witch to make a bargain.
1: Ursula. Ursula.
0: Well, she's not Ursula in <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen's story. She's still
1: got squid, squid arms.
0: No. She makes a deal. So, in this version, it's not just her voice. The witch cuts out her tongue.
1: Right. That's pretty intense.
0: Yeah. And she t- warns her when you walk on the land, every step you take will feel as if you are stepping on knives. Lovely. But do you have two legs? you'll be conventionally hot
1: <laughs> you'll just have constant horrible pins and needles
0: yeah um, and if she doesn't convince the prince to marry her she will turn into foam like sea foam
1: jesus <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh uh, the mermaid asks the witch do men have similar lifespan to mermaids and the witch is like no mermaids live 300 years men maybe 50 um, but they right. have an immortal soul that goes to heaven, and when we die, we just turn to foam.
1: Right. Okay.
0: If he marries you, you will get a human soul, and you will get to go to heaven. Oh. So it's really important for her salvation that this prince falls in love with her now.
1: It's a lot of pressure.
0: Yeah. She goes, and she finds the prince, and the prince thinks she's just adorable. She's this funny mute disabled girl who dances for his pleasure even though it gives her terrible pain but he can't see her as a romantic prospect because she can't speak also he doesn't know she saved him hmm. he can't conceive of marrying someone who didn't save him this is weird
1: it sounds like he's got a lot of issues to work through but...
0: yeah but she well she follows him around like a little pet and he treats her like a pet she gets the right to sleep outside his bedroom on a little silk cushion.
1: Oh, well, that's nice.
0: Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The prince's parents have arranged a marriage for him. Right. With a princess from a neighbouring kingdom. And he's like, no, I can't marry her. She's not the one that saved me. But then he sees her, and it turns out she is one of the girls from the temple because her parents have sent her to the temple for her education.
1: What? Sorry. So, hang on. Say that last bit again.
0: The mermaid dragged him up the shore To a temple where some women looked after him. Turns out one of those women was the princess from the neighbouring kingdom because she'd been sent to the temple for her education.
1: Oh, I see. Right. So then he... Okay, I'm with you. Okay.
0: The Little Mermaid even holds the princess's train on her dress at the wedding. She's so good. Um, Her sisters make another deal with the sea witch. In exchange for their hair, the sea witch gives them a dagger. And if the Little Mermaid stabs the prince with the dagger and splatters his blood on her legs. Her legs will turn back into a tail, and she will get to be a mermaid again.
1: And then she has to just, like, crawl back to the sea.
0: I guess? (laughs) Anyway, she's like, no. And she chucks the dagger overboard, and throws herself overboard, and as she hits the water, she turns into foam. But then, she becomes an air spirit.
1: Right, okay.
0: Becoming an air spirit is kind of like a purgatory. If she spends 300 years, so the lifespan of a mermaid doing good deeds, blowing fresh air into like pestilential ruins and bringing health. 300 years of that she gets to accede into the kingdom of heaven. Right. So she does get an immortal soul and she doesn't get the prince.
1: So she never actually ends up with the prince? No!
0: No! She dies!
1: (laughs) God, can you imagine if Disney had done that version?
0: I know! You can see why they didn't.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. It doesn't really fit their formula does it? No! It doesn't fit any formula what is that in terms of a Story. I
0: mean, a lot of Hans Christian Andersen's stories have a really sad ending.
1: I've read a couple of his before, and they do have, like, similarly sort of, like, bizarre plots.
0: Often the moral of the story is a certain amount of social mobility is possible, but only for the deserving. Right, okay. So that's The Ugly Duckling.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Hans Christian Andersen was very poor and working class and believed that he was a writing genius. And, you know, yes. Yeah. He was helped several times by more middle class friends. He was sent to school and then he was found a patron and he ended up having an allowance from Denmark's monarchy. So by all accounts, he was quite capitalistically successful. But he was very unhappy and he felt that he never really got the prestige that he deserved that his talent should have given him. So he's got these stories about you start at the bottom and you move sort of toward the top and then often you don't get there. Or you're punished in some way for wanting it by, for example, having the feeling of stepping on knives. Yeah. It's this very Renaissance thing. It's that, like, human nature is perfectible and that we are always improvable and that you can always ascend, like...
1: Right, his stories
0: right. are all about honestly, like self-made people, like self-made millionaires. They're like that person deserved it and was special, and so they ascended. It never really addresses like why people are poor. So another reading of the Little Mermaid is the queer reading, which is a very popular reading. Okay, Hans Christian Andersen seems to, at the very least, had a big, big crush on his patron's son. Right, who was a young man called. Edvard Collins, and Little Mermaid came out in 1837, the same year that Edvard got engaged to a woman. Right. And I'm going to read you a little bit of a letter from Hans Christian Andersen to Edvard. I languish for you as for a pretty Calabrian wench. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. That's uh, that's pretty cut and dry. Yeah. uh, Colin wrote in his own memoir, I found myself unable to respond to this love, and this caused the author much suffering.
1: Oh, bless them.
0: So that's another way. That's another way to look at The Little Mermaid is The Little Mermaid is in love with the prince and then has to behave really well at the prince's mm. wedding to someone else, and she never gets to speak up about it. She loses her voice. Oh, yeah. And she has to just be silent and see her prince be happy with somebody else.
1: Oh, that's so sad.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think he was quite a sad man. Um, yeah. But anyway, on to Jerry Pinkney's version, which I like quite a lot better. Right. So Jerry Pinkney thought it was really problematic to like have this woman character make all these sacrifices just for a man. Yeah. So in his version, the Little Mermaid is an actual child called Melody. She's Mm -hmm. brown. And she has a longing for the world, for the world Mm. above the sea.
1: I love that bit where it's saying that she's heard stories about ships that glide on top of the water rather than sit broken at the bottom of them.
0: She's very, very curious. She's got a friend. So it's not Sebastian the lobster. It's the sea turtle who's wearing some sort of other pointy shell as a kind of party hat on his head.
1: Because he's just a party kind of he's, turtle. He's a
0: cool dude. She's, she's got this burning curiosity about the world outside of the water. And her family are not very supportive of this. They don't think it's very interesting. And they don't think it's very appropriate for a princess. And then she finds a little doll. And the doll, instead of a tail, has got these two kind of like cloth sticks at the bottom of its body. And she's mm. like, oh, that's really weird. Why would you have cloth sticks instead of a tail? Like, what would you use them for? And then one day she follows her friend, the sea turtle, to the surface where he's gone to take a breath. Mm. and She sticks her head out and she sees a ball of fire in the sky <laughs> and yeah. seagulls and it feels cold and weird. And there's a girl on the beach and she's so awed by all this beauty that she starts to sing and the girl hears her and waves and Melody waves back and then her mentor, the turtle, gives her a little bite on the fin and is like come on now, you've got to come back Um, and she tries to tell everyone about, whoa, it was so amazing up there, there really is a ball of fire in the sky and they're like, nah, shut up Melody Uh, so she's feeling really sad, she's like, I'll never have a real friend nobody understands me and then The sea snake comes to speak to her and is like, oh, that's a real shame, isn't it? You'd never have a real friend. The sea witch could help Mm. you. Melody knows she's not supposed to speak to the sea witch. Her father has been very clear about that. Mm. There's some sort of war between her father's kingdom and the sea witch, and she's been Mm. banished for reasons unknown. I thought it was interesting that the sea snake looks like a Chinese dragon. Hmm. I think Jerry Pinkney's sort of gone for a lot of different cultural influences in his drawing. Do you know, um, in China, dragons are depicted more as snakes and they're more associated with water than they are with fire.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Anyway, so she follows a sea snake to the witch. The witch isn't exactly an octopus, but isn't exactly not an octopus. Yeah. She's red, she's got tentacles and hands, and she's living in the skull of what looks like a dinosaur mm. or a very big crocodile. <laughs> she's really scary. And she's like, yeah, so what do you want, legs? And Melody's like, not really, I want a friend. She's like, right, but you need legs to have a friend. <laughs> 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 uh, she's like, all right, then, uh, and... The witch says, In exchange for legs, I need your greatest gift, your voice And hmm. Melody speaks her voice into this seashell and it's sort of out of her and in the shell. And then she gets legs and she's like, Oh my god, I can't breathe on the water anymore So she's like quick 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 to the surface and she sees the same girl and she goes over and the girl says, Hi, I'm Zion. What's your name? And obviously Melody can't speak now. But she smiles, and they play together all day. They chase butterflies. They share a sense of creativity and adventure. May have a great day. Zion says, you're the best friend I've ever had. How come you can't speak? Melody still can't speak, so she doesn't say. Then she picks up a shell, and it's like she hears her own voice inside it. But she also hears, the sea witch has invaded... Your family need your help. There's a terrible storm coming. You need to come back. Melody explains all this to Zion by basically drawing a huge comic strip in the wet sand with a stick. Mm, mm. Yeah, so I was a mermaid. <laughs> I wanted a friend. There was a doll with two stick legs and the witch and... And Zion's like, wow, so you really were a mermaid. I sort of thought you might be when I saw you in the sea so deep, but like, I thought that couldn't be true. But wow, you shouldn't have given up your voice for anyone. Like, thank you so much, but also you need your voice. And she goes and gets her a present, which is a chrysalis. It used to be a caterpillar, and it's on its way to being a butterfly, and at the moment it's in between, and it's a little glass jar. Melody says goodbye, plunges into the sea, And there's this like massive scary battle going on. And the sea witch is much more powerful than her father. The soldiers from her father's kingdom are losing and the coral is dying. Melody sees that the shell that she put her voice in is now around the sea witch's neck. So she goes and she grabs it and she shouts, no! And her voice is back, her voice is back inside her and it can never be stolen again. And she vanquishes the sea witch, and the coral comes back to life. Meanwhile, on the shore, Zion sees that the sea is calmed and the storm have passed, and so she knows that Melody has been successful.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's all right, they're still friends, and they're friends forever. And Melody is now valued by her family, in her own right, for being somebody brave with a big voice and a big sense of adventure. And when the chrysalis is ready, Zion brings it back to the beach. And the butterfly flies over the sea where Melody can see it. The end.
1: So I guess it's still got some of the original in that the Little Mermaid doesn't totally get what she wants. Like, she does more so, right? Yeah. But there's still that heartbreak of, like, you get a day with the person you want to be with, Mm. but then you're back where you were. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't do a sort of, oh, you get to have both ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know.
0: Which Disney does.
1: So I kind of like that, I guess. It makes more sense in context of the original, because when I read Jerry Pinckney's version, I was like, oh, that's kind of a sad ending and a sort of weird ending. Mm. And it's like it doesn't feel so conventional that the ending is like... It sort of felt kind of trapping, like, you know, you can go away and have an adventure, but your family is always going to drag you back. Yeah. <laughs> But in the context of the original, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Mm, I really like it as an adaptation. I I really like that it's not a seeking of like a normy able-bodied life. It's not a desire for the body of the other. It's a desire for connection and yeah. for exploration. Like when um Zion gives her the butterfly, Zion sees the butterfly as a metamorphosis metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. But That's not how Melody sees it. Melody doesn't see herself as somebody who transforms. She sees herself primarily as an explorer. She sees sees Mm. the butterfly and goes, ah, an explorer like me. It just wants Mm. to see lots Mm. of different things. It's still about longing. Yeah. You know, like it's about longing for what you can't have. And Jerry Pinkney's just made it longing for the world and connection rather than like uh, longing for a man who had a birthday party or something.
1: Yeah, that's really that is really lovely, particularly with the context of the original story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And the pictures are gorgeous as yes. well. Yes.
0: Oh my god! Like his art is so brilliant. I first saw it in the Adventures of Brer Rabbit. His art. He's done a lot of other things as well. Right. Like, watercolor is so perfect for depicting an underwater kingdom, right? Because like mm. the blotches are kind of right, like the sort of slight distortion. In places yeah. are kind of right you can also see that he has done an awful lot of life drawing and he's really thought about the way that a mermaid's body would work they're much more mm. they've got much more fins they've got much more articulation in the tail than maybe what you would traditionally draw for a mermaid's tail like people typically like give a mermaid like a long fat tail with a tiny fin on the end, which actually if you tried mm. to swim with that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It would be quite difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this has got loads yeah. of like fanning out fins and loads of articulation.
1: Well, I guess that's it. Usually the mermaid is drawn to look the way someone would look if they'd crammed legs into a wetsuit yeah. with flippers on.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, and usually the mermaid is an object of desire. She's sitting on the rock, static. She's there yeah. for you to desire her. She's not an active participant.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We're going to, we'll we come back to that in Haven Point, the way that um, Lisette Auton reimagines that sort of temptress role as well. Part of the tragedy in Hans Christian Andersen's story is that the mermaid cannot at all make herself understood by the prince.
1: Right. Which
0: doesn't actually make any sense. Like, lots yes. of people can't say words with their mouths and still manage to make themselves understood. And I liked in this that, like, she's not completely disempowered and she's not completely robbed of language and her ability to communicate just because her voice isn't there. You know, like obviously, an option is drawing or writing when Mm. you can't use your voice. You know, like, obviously, had she had longer... She could have developed some sort of sign language, or learned some kind of sign language. Like it's a bit of a plot hole in the original that, like, there really is no way to make the yeah. prince understand. <laughs> Just have to follow him around like a lovesick puppy.
1: Sleep outside his door.
0: I know it's really tragic, isn't it?
1: I guess that's the other thing that there's a a, a similarity to the original that's been sort of like twisted slightly or brought out a bit more, as the because um in this newer version we're looking at the person who is the object of desire gets to find out the amount that the little mermaid has sacrificed for that. And like when you were telling the original, I was thinking like, Jesus, like if she could talk to him, like that's a lot of pressure. If you're like, Hey, I love you and you need to marry me. Otherwise I'm going to turn into foam (laughs) and never go to heaven. And um, because of you, my feet, feel like they're being stabbed every time I take a step so how about it yeah right (laughs) it's like it's a pretty that's a weird footing to start a relationship on right and like in this one you kind of get that like she's really nice about it but you have that moment of like oh wow mate like I you're great and it's been really nice hanging out with you for the afternoon but you shouldn't have given your voice away because yeah. you saw me on the beach like you should go home now yeah. <laughs> like here's a present leave please
0: <laughs> yeah it's a much more healthy depiction of an interaction between two people
1: yeah so i suppose it's like you get the realization of what in what would be an imagined interaction in the original because mm-hmm. that original that in the original that interaction never actually gets to happen And then the, and then the moral's quite sound. The sacrifice is made less of a thing, right? Like the pain isn't there. Like she loses her voice, Mm. but it's not like eternal chronic pain and like damnation in the afterlife. I know. (laughs) Bless Zion. Like she deals with that really well.
0: Yeah. That's a lot.
1: It's a pretty grown up response. Yeah. It'd be a lot for someone to tell you. Yeah. Like,
0: it's a lovely celebration of visual art as well, that you can that you can express all that through drawing. Jerry Pinkney often said that when he was asked by kids, you know, various book events, why do you draw? He said that is the way I can express myself best. It has always been the way I have expressed myself mm. best, and for me, the pictures always come before the words. Yeah, it's a true expression yeah. of myself. I feel like that's reflected in melody as well.
1: Mm, mm. Yeah.
0: It's lovely. Yeah. I think yeah. it would be a really good one to read, like in the way that I just told you, that you could do a, in a classroom, you could do a side-by-side.
1: Yeah, totally. You could
0: read Hans Christian Andersen's and Jerry Pinckney's and watch the film and see what you mm-hmm. think. Yeah. It'd be a really interesting yeah, thing yeah. to do. It's for older children, not teenagers, but it's not for your under fours, really. You need a certain attention span. Yeah, so six, seven, eight? Yeah. Preferably to be read with an adult, I think. It's it's quite
1: wordy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's a read together with an older child.
1: Yeah. Oh, fab. Well, shall we move on then?
0: Yeah. Will you tell us about The Secret of Haven Point?
1: Yes. So we have The Secret of Haven Point by Lisette Orton, which takes us into the hidden home of the Recklings which is a community of disabled people of all ages who've taken refuge in a lighthouse on the blustery coast of East England. So there was lots of uh, homely feelings for us. Yeah, The lighthouse is called Old Ben. And they're watched over by the captain, who is a middle-aged retired seafarer who keeps a kitten in his big bushy beard so this whole community is guarded by the boundaries which are a mystical force which keeps the outside world out and within the confines of the boundaries the recklings are self-sufficient because they provide for themselves by raiding passing cargo ships with the aid of mermaids who live locally um with whom they have a symbiotic relationship So the story focuses on the younger members of the Recklings, and our protagonist is Alpha, who is the first foundling of this community. Alpha was abandoned by her mum, but has been essentially adopted by the captain and her not-mam, Afira, who is the fiercest and most loving of all the mermaids. But Alpha starts seeing a reflective glint up on the clifftops near the old abandoned World War II pillbox and she decides she needs to investigate with her best friend Badger to see whether her birth mum might have come back for her after all.
0: Great synopsis, Matt. You're getting really good at these. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it's a really lovely book. Yeah. Where do we start? I've got
0: to start with the cover. Got to start with the cover. We're
1: starting with the cover. Okay.
0: We've got a cover for the first time in cover chat that I love. The cover is a lighthouse on a background of a starry sky and a splashy sea. Um, you've got the paper book, haven't you? Has it got glittery bits? I think it does.
1: You've got stars picked out in gold and the weather vanes picked out in gold. And then you've got the moody sea behind it.
0: With a mermaid's tail.
1: Yeah, I love I loved how local this was. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I declaring a bias. I know Lizette as well from the okay. spoken word scene in Newcastle, and she's uh, disabled herself and has written about disability a lot. We should credit the, the. There's a few illustrators, isn't there?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of illustrators and the designer. I think.
1: Yeah. So the cover is by Gillian Gamble. Um, but then there are little chapter-heading illustrations.
0: And a, a few full-page ones, too, of like particularly epic scenes.
1: Yeah, they're by Valentina Toro.
0: Yeah, who's disabled as well, I think. Yes. Yeah.
1: And then we also have a map and a cross-section of the inside of the lighthouse, which is uh, by Luke Ashforth.
0: And that's really cool. I, I do love a map at the beginning of a fantasy book.
1: <laughs> and as does Lisette. It's really sweet. There's a really extended section of acknowledgements at the end. And I think she's saying in that that it's a childhood dream of having a book of her own with a map. And now it's been realised. And it's it's an illustration as much as it's a map. But it's sort of like, I guess, a bird's eye view looking down at the cliff. Kind of showing the layout of the whole community.
0: Mm. This actually helps follow some of the action sequences as well.
1: It totally functions as the the fantasy map where you can get your bearings and figure out where things are.
0: What I love about the cover is it says fantasy. It doesn't say this is a story to help non-disabled children learn to be cooler to disabled children. You do get these books where like the cover illustration is like a big wheelchair or something yeah. and you're like ah yeah. this is an issue book you know yeah. <laughs> i really love that you know the characters depicted in the lighthouse are disabled and some of them visibly so but the first thing you think when you pick this book up is like this is a cool seaside fantasy thing
1: yeah well i think the whole book isn't a, it, it isn't a book for kids who aren't disabled no this is a book for disabled kids. Yes, that also deigns to be available for <laughs> kids who aren't disabled. Which I love is the way you it's put that. So, yeah, you know, it feels like something that Lisette has written for that community that is also completely available for people who aren't, and does all of that educational thing and like non-disabled characters come into the story as outsiders, and the disabled characters get to directly say to them, "Like that's not cool. You can't say that."
0: Yeah,
1: you know. And it's, but it, it's that, so it's got that educational thing, but it's not doing that sort of like, look at this disabled person who is actually just like you. Yeah, It's like.
0: And what an amazing thing to turn on its head, you know, because you get a lot of these books the same. It's like, it's about a non-disabled person learning to accept a disabled person, you know, and it's one disabled person. What I love is that almost everybody in this book is disabled that is the assumption you get to make about people going in
1: if the boundaries have let you through yeah. then yeah
0: then you're somewhat wonky yeah <laughs> i really yeah. like that because it also doesn't tell you what everybody's disability is i guess because it's not our business and it's not plot relevant because like i guess stories about disabled people don't have to include the histories of their trauma and medical decisions. Like that's not really our that's not really our business either, for the most part. So our protagonist is Alpha, and it's written mm. in the first person in her voice, and she tells us right at the beginning that she has a face like a fried jellyfish. She says, "I can say that because it's my face, but if you say it, I'll thump you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alpha is a survivor of an accident with some fire and she has considerable burns to her face, which are very visible and which um mean that she's only got one good eye that can see, the other eye can't see. That's clearly something that is traumatic to her, that that thing happened to her. So Alpha, because she's the narrator, trusts you with that story. That's her choice. Yeah. But you don't get everybody else's story, which I really like.
1: Sticking to the topic of the episode, um, we've got a reimagining of the mermaid.
0: Oh yeah, let's talk about the mermaids.
1: The classic story of mermaids, I suppose, is that they sort of lounge about on rocks and lure ships in and wreck them. Yeah. And this is, I suppose not a reimagining, it's been done before that mermaids are more otherworldly, but less often it's mm. leading into that more sort of alien animal depiction of mermaids this explanation of why they wreck ships is lovely
0: it's so good the reason the wrecklings are called the wrecklings is because they wreck ships
1: well it's sort of double isn't it it's kind of a it's kind of a like own voices reclaimed sort of
0: in the same way that um crip is a reclaimed term for the disabled community and also not an appropriate thing for other people to call disabled people yeah It's a bit like that. So
1: Reckling has that kind of like, we are the Recklings, but then it's also because they do
0: wreckings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the lore in this about the mermaid song isn't that it's irresistibly attractive or that they're trying to drown men. It's just that mermaid song stops you from forming fresh memories. It just freezes Mm. your memory-making process for just a little while unless you eat razor clams before that's Mm. sort of the antidote but having not eaten razor clams if you hear mermaids sing you're sort of somewhat aware of what's happening but you can't remember it so on Mm. very black nights
1: about once a month or so
0: new moon. Captain says, oh, we only do it to, like, the ships of bad corporations. How does he know?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: There's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of, like, moral grain, I swear, but I really like it. Picture it as a ship that belongs to Amazon. Yeah. When they come past, the captain doesn't like light the lighthouse, so they don't see that they're coming toward the coast, and they get stuck on a sandbar. Um, and then the mermaids start singing, so the people on board ship of you know no ability to recall what's happening and then the kids (laughs) barrel down toward the ship with their little wheelbarrows and things and like carts and some of them go on board and chuck containers down and then they barrel back up to the place where there's like a basically a pulley system and people on the knot team and they're making knots and every knot is checked three times then they haul it up the cliff to other people who are unpacking stuff and this way they get really important stuff certain foods but also medical supplies which is important when everybody in your community is disabled yeah. medicines, bandages, surgical tools the mermaids don't need to wreck because they are self-sufficient sea creatures with very sharp mm. teeth who mainly eat fish
1: but they sort of they share in the protection of these mystical boundaries I yes. suppose don't they that keeps the outsiders out
0: yeah there are only one clan of mermaids. There are other clans of mermaids around the British Isles, and they—they
1: they reminded me of the witches in His Dark
0: Materials. Yeah, yeah, they've got clans, and they've some... got some sort of you know communication between the clans, and also the clans have different vibes. Which mermaid is it that came up from like the South Finns because she was like a bit rowdy for them?
1: Is it Henrietta? Yes, it's is Henrietta. It yeah. I think it's
0: Henrietta. One of the mermaids is. Alpha's special mermaid, Ephira. And they've got this very strong bond from when Alpha was found as a little baby. That Ephira was the only one who wanted to touch the burned side of her face and kiss the burned side of her face. Alpha calls her her not-ma'am, her not-sister. It's not quite either of those things. It's very special. She's sort of the only person that Alpha really lets herself be soft around and be sort of petted and looked after. Um, As part of this very special relationship, Alpha is sometimes allowed in deep, which is where the mermaids live under the water. And you have to get through it um, via no entry. (laughs) (laughs) Which reminded me a bit of um, Pog, the necessary.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's portal. Yeah, Yeah. it's portal stuff. So the way you do that is there's a saltwater charm, and this is both what allows mermaids to have their land legs on the land to walk around and also to breathe the air, and it's what allows Mm. humans, or at least Alpha, to go in the water and have a sea fin and gills to be able to breathe in the water. So that's
1: a really cool thing as well, isn't it? Is because when they've got the saltwater charms on, like when the mermaids are on land, it's not that their tails have gone. They're sort of like it's like an optical illusion. Yeah. Like if you squint and look closely, you can see the shape of the tail like shimmering around mm. the legs, and it's like it's like the legs are almost like a bit of a VR thing, yeah.
0: almost <laughs> like.
1: I I loved that as an idea. Me
0: too. The magic of that.
1: Because again, with with all mermaid stories I've read, it leans into that like the pain of transformation and that awful sacrifice. Whereas this is just yeah, it softens that a bit.
0: Well, and it doesn't hold the world on land up as being better than being in the sea. And that yeah,
1: if anything, the other way round.
0: livers have to wear a charm to go in the water and water dwellers have to wear a charm to go on land. It's both ways. You need a sort of tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting in terms of boundaries as well. So we've got the big boundaries, which are basically a spell to keep out non-disabled people. But also, privately, there are real boundaries between the mermaids and the humans. Like, for the most part, the humans cannot go into the mermaid's territory and the mermaids hardly, hardly ever come up on land. Like, they've Mm -hmm. got these quite delineated spaces and then there are a few people who can transgress it, but it's through these very consensual and negotiated boundaries. So, at the beginning, Alpha has a saltwater charm, but when Ephira realises that Alpha can come in deep without her and just sort of help herself and let herself in like she's got a house key. She takes it off her because they don't Mm. actually want her having unlimited access to their space. It's a conditional permission.
1: She gets invited, doesn't she? So if she wakes up with a shark tooth on her pillow, she knows that she's been (laughs) invited down to no entry.
0: Oh, they're so metal. (laughs) A bloody shark teeth as well, like a fresh one.
1: Yes, yeah, like it's been ripped fresh out the gum.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's by invitation only, access to this space. And not all the mermaids are cool with Alpha being there at all. Cobalt is not. Cobalt is one of the mermaids. He's not into it. And I like, I don't know, that illustration of a relationship and of boundaries that are conditional. When you are invited, Mm -hmm. you may come in. And also, you can't just let yourself in any time.
1: There's a point later on in the story where, I like, again, mermaid years work differently. It mm. keeps that. But um, it's sort of suggested that Ephira's human age is equivalent to being about 23, 24. Yeah. So it's that really interesting sort of like, she, in the eyes of Alpha, who we're assuming is about 11 or 12.
0: I don't even think she's ish. that old.
1: Let's call it 10. Let's okay. split the difference. Okay. Yeah, it's that sort of... Um, that age where it like in the in the eyes of someone that old she's a, f- a complete adult yeah but like when you are that age 23 24 that's you know it's an interesting negotiation isn't it like you're not kind of you don't feel completely grown up yet and like and that duty of care would be quite taxing and yeah this gang of kids read as working class geordie kids
0: yeah they do. Yeah.
1: And again, that feels quite fierce and quite owned is mm. that it's like, they don't know long fancy words so much, but that doesn't matter. And people like lording it over them that they do yeah. is the thing that is not acceptable. Yeah. Um, it felt like there was a real working class politics in that as well for me. Like, yeah. Geordie kids knocking about on the beach was...
0: Yeah, lovely. do you know what's great about them is that they're not saintly disabled children at all they're little knackers they are they're they're annoying not everything they do is cool and they can be really quite mean to each other they're flawed they're realistic i really like that they've got this interesting uh vibe i guess group vibe of being very physical with each other there's a lot of like affectionate punching and shoving and sort of showing that you're tough
1: it's got that sort of like Tracy beak
0: ragtag group of kids all living together, all without a traditional parental figure.
1: They've all got some sense of being abandoned or yeah. lost and refound by this community. So there's all all of them are portrayed as in one way or another haven't wear a bit of a tough outer skin.
0: Yeah. I had this when I was a young wrestler. This is exactly how young wrestlers are with each other, pushing right. and shoving and like there was yeah. a time when the way we said hello, we'd go to like put a hand out to shake hands, but then you'd like get the other person in a headlock, you know, <laughs> and that was high. It's really nice. It's really sort of physical culture. And I think part of it is to do with disability, is to do with that not everybody talks, and not everybody talks in the way that other people talk. So they talk about how they've sort of innovated finger spelling on um, on somebody's hand because one person is deaf and one person is blind. So signing doesn't work and talking doesn't work. Yeah, and so they've evolved yeah. this way of speaking, which has to involve touch. And I think that's part yeah. of part of why they're also physical with each other and so physically close is that it's part of their communication. It's part of their communication culture. There's a really cool bit where um, Alpha and Badger don't want to let on that they're talking. So they're having this superficial conversation with their voices, but then also Badger is pulling Alpha's hand to help her up from sitting down and she's writing in her hand what she actually means. You know, some of that as well. It's really like layers of communication and conversation and intimacy. I think is really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. Alpha's not totally cool.
0: Love that. that? Yes. Alpha. Alpha's an anti-hero, is she? Do we think?
1: Certainly for the first half to two-thirds of the story. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a real kind of late redemption arc. Mm. Even so, even by the end of the book, she's... (laughs) She's a 9 10 11 year old kid who's been through a lot, yeah, right? But
0: Exactly. She's
1: got a real superiority complex. Oh
0: yes. Yeah. Cuz
1: she was the first. She yeah. was the first foundling. She was the first one the captain she's found. Called she's alpha.
0: This... <laughs> yeah. She's got this special
1: relationship with the Fira where she's allowed to go in under the water and no one else is. And yeah. When things do all start kicking off and strangers appear like alpha feels like she's like the protagonist in all of that and um and it's it's this really interesting. And she not, thinks not the rules
0: don't apply to her. Yeah. That apply to other people. Yeah.
1: And without going into it too much to us so as to spoil too much like for the first bit of the book because there's this character willis who the whole gang like routinely bullies awfully but he's presented as this like impossible guy to get along with like he's a proper snitch he's a goody two shoes he's always like sticking his hand up and being like oh alpha didn't do the dishes and i think she should be punished yeah so at first you're like oh willis man shut up but then like the more it goes on and i i was thinking at first like Oh dear like does Lisette know that like the protagonist is not like this isn't cool
0: Yeah yes she does <laughs> There's a real reckoning for Alpha. There's
1: a whole middle section where, yeah. like, all of our friends are like, you know, we only bully Willis because you do, and you're in charge.
0: Yeah.
1: And, like... And she's like,
0: what? Just, I'm not in charge. <laughs>
1: one, yeah, one by one, everyone... She's going round trying to find reassurance from everyone, like, like, oh, no one likes me anymore. And everyone's sort of like, yeah, that's because you're difficult. Like, <laughs> you're like <laughs> so, so, you got some stuff to sort out with that, like... Yeah that that was that was really cool I but that it felt was so, so strong. Yeah, one of the best written strands for me is that yeah. kind of like childhood figuring out changes in relationships and changes in friendships and things breaking down and not working the same as they have and the impossibility of fixing that.
0: Yeah. Cuz in some ways she's so immature like in some ways she's so young. Yeah. Like Yeah. She's fallen out with her best friend Badger. And that's, like, a source of such pain for her. Alpha knows what she's done wrong, because Badger's sort of said. But rather than Mm. do anything about that, she's like, I'll steal her a bowl of buttercream. Like, I'll make some offering. Mm. I'll just, like, give her a present, and then everything will be better. And then when, like, that doesn't fix it, she's outraged.
1: Yeah, but that's believable too. And then the other thing with this is that, like, I couldn't name one character in this whole book who isn't, bit of a dick sometimes like like badger doesn't behave well at all when they fall out and the adults are like variously a bit useless Afira is this great fierce role model but again as we say she's like she's young herself and starts getting caught up in other things and
0: yeah
1: everyone has a moment where they don't behave well. It's this messy, messy community of people Mm. who've just been thrown together and all have traumatic stuff that they're dealing with.
0: I think this is what makes it not a utopia and what makes it so strong. Because at the beginning of the book, Alpha is really trying to sell you on it being a utopia. Yeah. And it being perfect. And of course it's not. Of course it's not. Nothing's perfect. I've got a excerpt that I want to read about that so this comes after alpha and her friends have just done something really unacceptable to willis i tried to be friends willis says you didn't want anything to do with me you're so popular aren't you alpha if you didn't want anything to do with me well neither did anyone else that's not true i say and then i think about it so not true i say quieter but was it is it Everyone goes on about this being the best place ever. An inclusive community where we're all accepted exactly as we are, no matter which bits of us don't work. Willis knocks on his fiberglass leg to highlight his point. But if your personality doesn't fit, or if the favorite one decides to take the hump, that's it. Game over for you. She really doesn't know that she's doing it. Like, she really doesn't. And I think that is how it is for lots of kids that bully. Mm. Most of them probably don't think of themselves as a bully or doing something mean, you know, like, I don't think that's part yeah. of hardly anybody's self-concept.
1: And then it's not an instant fix, either. No. There's, yeah, she has to fight for it.
0: And it's not like he tells her that once and then she stops all her bullying behaviour, because <laughs> that's not what happens, mm, either. Mm, mm. She has to hear it from several people in several different ways. And she does change and she does learn. But she doesn't learn quickly and she doesn't become perfect.
1: I think she's my favourite character, if we're jumping yeah. into that.
0: Oh, you never pick the main character as your favourite character.
1: I never pick the main protagonist my favourite character because I like to be different. There are close runners, like I really liked Badger. She's awesome. And I really like Large. He's this gentle mm-hmm. giant. Who's like the most Geordie. I think at one point we get him saying knee bother, yeah. which is so great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not a disabled person. So I don't have the experience of this book of like...
0: I'm a disabled person. I'm not as from the North as you. Yeah. It does feel really magical to me in that mm. way, in the disabled way. But I think for you, it feels magical in the northeast way.
1: Yeah. It's not written fully in dialect. But it's like, oh, yeah, like you just get a little bit of like hearing how people actually talk.
0: Don't run your hand over the wood in that direction because you get spelks.
1: Yeah.
0: She <laughs> <laughs> doesn't yeah. explain a spelk is a splinter, but you don't need to, right?
1: I thought it just said splinter.
0: No, 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 it says spelk. Oh,
1: that's really nice. Elf yes. is my favourite. It's that flawed anti-hero. Yeah. She's so self-involved, but so loving at the same time.
0: Mm, Yeah, I really like her. But I'm going to say my favourite is Willis. Right. The kid she bullies. Curveball. Yeah. Well, so I picked up on her being mean to Willis quite early on, before she does anything actually terrible. But when she's just being a bit mean to him, because... Oh, he's the kid I was. I was the little telltale, the little, like rule follower, yeah. you know. (laughs) Alpha thinks she's really cool and her lot think they're really cool because they don't care about the rules. But Mm. not caring about the rules is a social skill. Like, Mm, mm, mm. non-compliance is a social skill.
1: Mm. And
0: it is one that, at that age, I just didn't have. I probably would have thought it was really cool to not do as I was told, but I didn't have the ability not to. My world, especially at school was the rules and the rules felt very important to me and Mm. I felt personally offended when other children didn't follow the rules Mm. Mm. and I'm sure it was annoying and it did annoy other kids of course it did when I was like telling on them and like I don't think you should do that (laughs) (laughs) I discovered that I could bunk off school at university I bunked off school for the first time ever when I was 19 years old. And it was amazing. I went away for lunch and I just didn't go back.
1: Yeah.
0: And nothing happened. I couldn't believe nothing happened. Like I'd been gritting my teeth through school my whole life being like, I literally have no choice but to be here. Yeah. I actually can't leave. And then realizing that like some rules, you break them and nothing happens. Yeah. But like that was a skill and that was something I had to learn and I think it's something that Willis doesn't know yet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I had a lot of compassion for that. Like, uh, the kid is really annoying to the other kids and that they think is a bit gross. I'm pretty sure the other kids thought I was a bit gross. But that's why I like Willis. I've got a good quote about Willis here. The problem is, Willis thinks he knows everything but actually knows very little, as is the case with most shouty people. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really good line about him. <laughs>
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, Willis. So I think maybe we should talk about Scariometer, because I think there's quite a lot to talk about here.
0: There is, yeah.
1: This is a dangerous book.
0: Is this the scariest book that we've done? I
1: think for me, when we first started doing Scariometer and we put like Jumbies in at, I think, like an eight and a half. And you wanted to go higher, and I said, we need a bit of headroom. And you said, well, we're not going to do anything scarier than the Jumbies. This is the the headroom we were leaving space for. In hindsight, there's foreshadowing of the danger. What starts as this really safe utopia, when it gets dangerous, it gets really scary. Like, yeah. um the fact that they steal medical and surgical equipment becomes relevant.
0: Yeah, there's a really bad injury.
1: Yeah, there is a really bad injury. The danger is not superficial and is not without consequence.
0: And it's not fantasy. I think what makes it so scary is that this book has fantasy elements, Yeah. but the violence and the danger are very realistic and possible. Yeah, yeah. So the scary stuff that happens feels really real. There are... I mean, I think we should say this, even though it's a slight spoiler. Like, there is gun stuff in this book, which is really frightening. Hmm. There there are moments with weapons. um, And there are moments where um, the danger comes from the protagonist herself.
1: I think having said that, I don't think that should be taken as a reason not to recommend this book. It's like, it's really well embedded. I think it's, it's dangerous and it doesn't pull its punches at all. But I think it's probably handleable. Yeah. It's upsetting, but I think mm. there's a catharsis to that. There's a whole theme in this book of change and endings. Yeah. And things not lasting forever, and I think the danger leans into that. And I think also yeah. like a bit of it for me comes from the setting. It's like the sea is dangerous, cliffs are dangerous, and that whole kind of, like...
0: The pillbox fell in on someone, didn't it?
1: Yeah, so even before the story that we have, yeah, there's the roof collapsed onto someone. It feels dangerous in the way that, like, school trips before health and safety laws were dangerous. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the whole setting feels kind of dangerous, but in a way that the characters are so used to and okay with
0: i think also it fits with the sort of nautical theme in that these children for example are very superstitious so there's a little whitewashed wall that they always knock on twice before they go anywhere like yeah i feel like superstitious cultures like that are built around a need to live with a certain level of ambient danger and risk yeah you know, And I think yeah. because it's such an integral part of their culture, it feels all right to them that some bad stuff can happen. Even when they're wrecking, like they're running into the sea with a barrow. No. Um, when Alpha first sees the glint, she's taking part in a wrecking. She's handling a cart.
1: Yeah, I'd forgotten about that bit.
0: Something distracts her while she's doing this work of wrecking this ship and she gets trapped underwater for a while. Yeah, like underneath the thing she's carrying. And that's just a thing that happens, and then they have a meeting about it later, and someone's like, uh, Alpha got knocked down in the sea and was under there for a while, and Captain's like, yeah, yeah. you okay, Alpha? And Alpha's like, yeah, and that's it.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> <was> wildly irresponsible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Nine out of ten? Yeah. But I wouldn't, for that reason, push the recommended age up. I think you could start reading this at about eight.
1: Yeah, I'd say so, eight or nine, yeah, Yeah. which feels like what we always say.
0: Well, no, I feel like sometimes we're in the 10, 11, 12, sort of like the edge of YA. This is very clearly not YA, this is at the younger end of middle grade, I would say.
1: I could imagine picking this up and enjoying it when I was sort of 13, 14 as well.
0: I think one of the big differentiations between YA and middle grade is the way that romance is treated. And romance in this is really seen as a thing that happens between the grown-ups and that the children yeah. look on, oh, we haven't mentioned the gay wedding. we should mention the gay wedding.
1: <laughs> we have a gay wedding, which is at the end, but I don't think is a spoiler it gets it's gets mentioned early on, Samora so and Laura, yeah, our lovely gay couple,
0: yeah, everybody gets involved in like making the bunting and like the cakes. Yes. They have the wedding in one of the caves and they stick all these candles in and so it just looks really magical.
1: They put seashells all over the ceiling so it sort of shimmers.
0: What are the vows? Can you find the vows quickly? The vows are really lovely and short.
1: Yeah, because it's captain marries them. Yeah. And he just sort of... Because
0: sea captains can marry people, can't they? Legally.
1: Yeah! (laughs) Here we are. Captain continues... Maura and Laura have asked me to keep this short and sweet and I am happy to oblige. We all know that this is just the bit we have to get through as an excuse for the party. He winks and everyone laughs. Once it's died down, he straightens his shoulders and we know he's being serious again. Do you, Mora, promise to love Laura with all of you, share everything with her and support her the way you would wish to be supported? Mora looks Laura directly in the eyes. I do. And you, Laura, do you promise to love Maura with all of you, share everything with her and support her the way you would wish to be supported? Laura grins and yells, I do!
0: Those are great vows! Those are some disabled vows, man. (laughs) Yeah, man. I really like it. There's some other really good bits about disability that we haven't touched on too much. There's stuff about, um... At one point, during a wrecking, Alpha asks Badger, oh, who's with the toddlers, and she goes, oh, Laura is... And Alpha asks, oh, was she well enough for that today? And Badger says, oh, she says it's worth the energy. And it explains that Laura's energy is like a battery that doesn't fully recharge. That as soon as you unplug it from the wall, it's already flashing to be plugged back in. And sometimes you have to choose between stuff. Sometimes you choose between going to a party or having your dinner. And sometimes you choose between sitting up and brushing your teeth and I think that's really good. And there's another bit like that about the wedding. So the captain finds it really difficult to leave the lighthouse. But he's come out yeah. of the lighthouse, down the beach, into the cave to officiate this wedding. And Alpha's watching him and he looks uncomfortable. And she's like, well, probably it's just because it's really hard to be away from his home at the moment. But um sometimes it's worth pushing it especially when you know that you'll be supported to flop afterwards. And that's disabled life. Like, we can't always take part in everything. Usually we can't take part in everything. And sometimes it's not worth the energy and sometimes it is. And sometimes you do stuff that is maybe not medically recommended for you because it's emotionally worth it, you Mm. know. And I really like the way that these things are represented in this book. Okay. I mean, you can tell this is disabled in the best way.
1: Yeah, it's an own voices book. Yeah. Like this book could not be written in this way by someone who wasn't disabled. No. I don't think able bodied people can't write disabled characters. No. But this book is so own voices and reclaim. I mean, let's talk about the note on language at the beginning.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that.
1: So, Lizette does a whole little bit where she sort of sets out her terms, I suppose. I'll just read a little bit of it. I made conscious choices in this book about the way the characters choose to describe themselves. These choices are based on the way I describe myself as a disabled person. I also asked my disabled friends about the language they use to describe their impairments and conditions, and then I used those words too. Person first language. Some people choose to use the phrase people with a disability. Identity-first language. I choose identity-first language when I say I'm a disabled person. And it's the way my characters describe themselves too. It means that I focus on the fact that I think my body and brain are brilliant exactly the way they are. It says that society needs to change, not me. Disabled is a strong, empowering word. There is no shame in using it. Individual choice is very important and we must always respect each other's decisions and be kind to each other when it comes to the words we choose for ourselves and the ways in which we describe our own impairments.
0: Oh, that's so good.
1: I think what's lovely about that and this whole book as well is, like, there is no ivory tower with Lizette. It is such an antidote to that. Yeah. It is a book which screams this was a community book project yeah, right yeah. you know our acknowledgements at the end sort of say like writing is solitary but there was a huge amount of people and
0: it's the opposite of a chosen one narrative where one person's really important and everyone else is peripheral yeah i mean alpha thinks she's that but the book knows that she's not
1: like she is the protagonist yeah. and the book goes what you think you're mint because you're the protagonist
0: <laughs> I know, it's like so funny.
1: pipe down <laughs> it's great so a sequel please under film please thanks
0: <laughs> so that was episode 28 of even the trunchbull
1: thanks for listening
0: once again if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid
1: or love now as a kid
0: let us know or ask a grown-up to let us know we're at even the at gmail.com or catch us on twitter and facebook at trunchbull pod and on instagram at even the trunchbull
1: Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers.
0: And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even Even the the ones.